Make your way to Matthew chapter 4 this morning for our time in God's Word as we study together. Matthew chapter 4, and we are coming quickly to the conclusion of Matthew's introduction of Jesus as we wrap up chapter 4, and we will begin the teaching ministry of Jesus in just two weeks, Lord willing, as we step into chapter 5 and the famous Sermon on the Mount. And I'm looking forward to that. I've been excited about getting there, trying to keep myself patient before we do get there, and uh, study effectively what the Lord has laid before us, and I trust we'll do that this morning. Matthew chapter 4 in our text this morning will be verses 18 to 22, and we'll have one more concluding section next Sunday, and then we'll move to the teaching ministry in chapter 5. It's under the divine inspiration that Paul, the apostle, who we just read in our scripture reading, instructed Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 to gather around himself men who were faithful to the cause of Christ so that he might pour truth into them. You remember this section in 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Timothy was to find faithful men that could then carry on the truth. Timothy was to pour into those faithful men And those men then would diversify and multiply and find faithful men. And those faithful men who had found faithful men would find faithful men. And the church would go forward with the truth being the central central emphasis and priority of the ministry. Timothy was a living illustration of that call from Paul, right? He was one of the faithful men who Paul had poured his life into, and now Timothy was given the responsibility to do the same thing. And Paul had several in his team, Luke being one that's most notable, Timothy, Titus, Barnabas, all were Silas, all were friends of Paul, and yet all were under the spiritual tutelage of Paul for the sake of the ministry. should be no surprise to us that when we come to Matthew chapter 4, we find our Lord Jesus setting the standard of gathering around himself a group of men, gathering around himself a group of faithful men who had committed themselves to his kingdom purposes and calling on them to come and to be particularly influenced by his ministry. This is a very personal section of God's word as we see the Lord Jesus calling out four men for his own attention, his special attention and instruction and preparation for ministry in his absence. Large crowds were following the Lord already as he concluded his Judean ministry and moved into Galilee. And We spoke of this last week. Large crowds were already gathering. We're going to talk about that again in the, in the next paragraph. Uh, but Jesus was still concerned for the immediate instruction of 12 individuals. And here we'll see four of them being beckoned again to come along with him for personal and special attention and instruction. The Messiah King was fully capable to establish his kingdom on his own. He was not in need of help, and yet here we see him validated and confirmed throughout these chapters, now asking and calling men that he would pour into for the sake of aiding his ministry endeavors. He was establishing his cabinet. You know, the president of our country has a cabinet that advises him, that helps him, that thinks with him, and that he, he trusts to carry out his vision, his agenda, 
his perspective on what needs to happen in our country. There is another group that is even closer that you may not know about that's called the kitchen cabinet of the president. And the kitchen cabinet are immediate friends that are personal to him that he meets with occasionally for personal interaction and for personal um, development together. Kings would establish an inner court of wise men, men that would give advice and men that would carry out the decrees of the king. And here, the Messiah king, not needing advice, not needing wisdom, not needing to bounce his thoughts off of anyone, but simply to provide for the opportunity for multiple ministries to go forward in his kingdom, he has gathered an inner court to himself. He is gathering men for the sake of his kingdom. The selection and the calling of a few men for close interaction is not at all hard for us to grasp. In fact, it's very reasonable to us that he would do this, and we, we are familiar with this section. And again, familiarity breeds indifference. And so we come to this with hearts that need to be re, to made re-aware of what we find in verses 18 to 22. So here to conclusion of this introduction of Jesus. He's calling men to himself, and it's all based upon the backdrop. We've not left our context. The backdrop of, verse, of chapters 1 through 4, providing the validation and the confirmation that Jesus is, in fact, who he said he was. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the one with the human right to the throne of David and to the promises to Abraham. He is the one with the divine lineage and the virgin birth as promised. He is the one who has been baptized and been confirmed by the Spirit and by the voice of the Father. He is the one who has been tempted, tried, and proven pure, and proven to be submissive, submissive to his Father's plan. And last week we saw that even in his movements in ministry, he is consistently fulfilling prophecy about the promised Messiah. All of that leads us now to this introduction, really, to the ministry work of Jesus as he goes along in his daily life in these years of ministry. If you remember, we've already been a year into the ministry of Jesus. The Judean ministry is not recorded by Matthew. But we understand that between verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4, we have a gap of time where John, the Apostle John, in his Gospel account, gives us the Judean ministry and all that went on in Judea during those days. All of that brings us now to this section, and let's read it together. Verse 18 says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. This is not fishing like I fish with a spin cast and uh, rubber worms. This is fishing for the sake of making money. This is the Discovery Channel kind of fishing, the most dangerous catch kind of fishing, where there is a large circular net placed deep into the water, and they would pull that net up, closing its bottom, hoping to catch many fish. So they are throwing out their net, and Jesus comes to them, and he makes this request, Follow me. And it is a reasonable request. James and John, on the other hand, had just concluded their fishing adventure. We find them in the later part of this paragraph 
And going on from there, verse 21 says he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. In the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. They are making the needed mending to their nets. They've been fishing, there are holes, there are tears, and they are repairing their nets, probably after fishing through the night. So Jesus finds these two sets of brothers, and I thought we would just take a moment to think about these men. There is nothing special about these men. These are ordinary men. Some of you may have read a book that was dedicated to examining the lives of the twelve, and it was called Twelve Ordinary Men. There's nothing special about them. There's nothing we're called to see in their lives at this point as examples other than their immediate obedience. There's nothing in their character or in their profession that sets them apart. In fact, the opposite is true. James and John, who would later be known as the Sons of Thunder, and Simon and Andrew, Peter and Andrew, were just common Galilean fishermen. Very low education, if any education. Very low religious training, if any religious training. And yet these are the kind of men that Jesus comes and calls out to follow after him. Working class, little to no education, not the choice that the Pharisees would have made. And you'll remember later in the book of Matthew, Jesus chooses another man to follow him that the Pharisees certainly would not have chosen, and they attack Jesus for choosing him, and his name is Matthew, the Levi, Levi, the tax collector. And so these men are not set apart for spiritual leadership by the Jewish mind. But he comes to them and he offers this reasonable request. And you say, why is it a reasonable request? Well, because of what we've found in chapters 1 to 4 thus far. He's been confirmed. He's been tested. He's been baptized. He has a lineage that is proven. His genealogy backs up his claim. And as he comes to them, their response proves that it was a reasonable request on his part as the Messiah to demand or desire for them to follow after him. And it hasn't changed. Jesus demand his request for you and for me to follow after him is directly connected to what has been proven true in chapters 1 to 4. It is reasonable, it is understandable that the promised Messiah, the Savior of sinners, the Lord of the universe, What Colossians explains to us, he is the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things in human flesh when he requests you, the sinner, to follow him, the sinless sacrifice. It is only reasonable that we would respond with the same response of these men. So it is a reasonable request. The request is quite simple. It's follow me. And at face value, this is not difficult for us to understand. And yet this is a theme throughout our gospel account and through the entire New Testament of what it is to be a disciple, a Christian. It's to be a follower of Christ. In fact, I thought it would be helpful for us just to take a moment to look at follow me in our gospel accounts. And you can walk along with me. Turning several pages to Matthew chapter 8.
Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is teaching on the cost of following him. He says in verse 18, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Chapter 9 and verse 9, Jesus, as he passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. Interesting that Matthew references himself as a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Matthew chapter 10, verse 38. Verse 34, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. In other words, the gospel will divide families. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Verse 38 says, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Follow me. Chapter 16 in Matthew. Chapter 16 in verse 20, or 21 rather. Jesus foretells his death and his resurrection, and it brings him to verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, the sign of death, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Or what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, referencing the transfiguration of chapter 17. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Chapter 19 of Matthew In verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. This is the rich young man. And when the young man heard this, in verse 22, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Come, follow me. Mark chapter 1 and verse 17. This is the account we're reading. This is the parallel account. Jesus says to them, Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Chapter 2 and verse 14. And he passed by and he saw Levi. That's the one Matthew says was called Matthew. The son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And Matthew rose 
and followed him. Mark 8 and verse 34. And calling the crowd with, to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Mark 10, verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing, go, young man. Sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. We could go on all the way through Luke's account, all the way through John's account, and we could see over and over and over again the message of our Lord, come, follow me. Follow me. It is the reasonable request. In John chapter 21, We find at the very conclusion of John's account, Jesus is speaking to Peter. In verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, John says, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, Feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly I say to you that when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you were old, But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God, that being Peter. And after saying this, here are Jesus' final words to Peter, follow me. This is the call of discipleship. This is the message of Jesus to those who would believe. It is come and follow me. The Messiah's call is always is always present for those who would believe. By way of application, I think it's important for us to think deeply about this request. It's reasonable because of who Jesus is. But it's more so, it is a demand upon the lives of these men that we should think deeply about. Because in this request, and we'll see this in the response, but in this request is both the negative and the positive. The negative aspect is leave behind whatever it is that you've been following. And the positive is point your direction totally and entirely focused on me. Jesus calls us to an utter abandonment of all that we follow, all that we pursue, all that our lives are directed by if we are to come after him and be known as his followers, as little Christ, as Christians. This is the request that Jesus gives us. The narrative keeps going, and the next reasonable element or component is the reasonable result. And we're back in Matthew chapter 4, in verse 19. He tells us now the result of their following him, and it is an understandable one. 
If they are to follow him, Jesus will make them, verse 19 says, I will make you fishers of men. Jesus promises them that they will fish in a much different lake and for a much different catch. Discipleship in its essence is evangelistic. To be a follower of Christ is to proclaim his good news, his kingdom, for the sake of gathering others to that kingdom. So this morning, you and I, who claim to be followers of Christ, we are given a commission, we are given a mission in this life. A follower of Christ is a gatherer of other followers of Christ. We are soul winners, is the old term. We are fishers of men. Obviously, Jesus is using a reference to the familiar of these men's lives, but it is not a hard picture for us to grasp. There are no undercover Christians. There are no undercover followers of Christ. There are no private, personal followers of Christ. They are associated with his body. They fellowship and use their gifts within the local expression of that body. And they are sent on a mission to gather others to the kingdom purposes of their master. Nobody, no group exemplified that more than the twelve. They were the foundational fishers of men. We stand on the foundation of the apostles' teaching and their work. These men would be sent out shortly, two by two, to go and proclaim the message of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If we follow Christ... We must be active in fishing for men as our spiritual occupation. It's convicting, isn't it? To be a follower of Christ is to be a fisher of men. It is the reasonable, it is the natural, it is the understandable result of being a follower of the king. It is to give your life to the king's purposes. If we swear our allegiance to a leader... We swear our allegiance to pursuing his vision, his purposes, his ends. How much more with our Lord Jesus Christ? Matthew chapter 13 is an interesting section of Scripture, and I I love this section. It's a group of parables. Many of you probably have loved studying the parables. But in Matthew 13, these are kingdom parables. They are explaining or illustrating the kingdom In verse 47 of Matthew chapter 13, this is how the kingdom is described by Jesus. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. So the kingdom is like a net. It's not like the fish, it's like the net. It gathers fish. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be for at the close of the age, the angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the kingdom is seen as a net that gathers many fish. And we, as those who take the kingdom purpose forward, are to be gathering those fish. We are not the judge of what is good and bad in the fish. We do not separate the good from the bad, the chaff from the wheat, but we gather them together into the kingdom purposes of our king. 
I remember in high school, right after I was saved, I was zealous for others to be excited about the Lord and probably misguided in my zeal and in the way that I went about hoping that others would join me in zeal. But I remember probably too aggressively being in discussion with classmates of mine who claimed to be believers. And I remember specifically one classmate saying to me, I just, my faith in Christ is just a personal thing. It's just a personal aspect. It's private. I don't like to talk about it. I don't like to talk about how, what circumstances surrounded my coming to know the Lord. It's personal. And really, this testimony, as well as the testimony of our New Testaments elsewhere, and even our commission as a people of God, defies that concept. If we are followers, then we are fishers. And so he's called these four men to depart from their fishing, which was their occupation, to follow after him, and he would make them into fishers of men. There's an old song that many of you may know from a time period well forgotten, probably too readily forgotten, song that is based off of a story told by D.L. Moody, and the song is called Let the Lower Lights Be Burning. And I remember this song as a child being sung, but the story is of D.L. Moody giving this account of a ship coming into Cleveland Harbor on Lake Erie, and there was upper lights that always burned up on a bluff above, and ships could see that the harbor was present, and then there were lower lights along the bottom that shined so that the rocks would be exposed and ships would not wreck in coming into the harbor. The story is told that a ship was coming in on a stormy night and the lower lights had been washed out. The pilot of the ship told the captain, I don't think we should try it. We don't have the lower lights to guide us. We only have the upper light, which we know is always constant. We could wreck our ship. And the captain said, it's too dangerous. I don't want to sit in the in the storm tonight, we're going to try to make it in without the lower lights. And of course, the ship was lost, several of the crew members drowned, and D.L. Moody told the story, and a song was written, Let the Lower Lights Be Burning. And you see the illustration where it's going. The kingdom purpose is constant. The light is constantly given from above. The Word of God is revealed to man. His creation sings His praises and yet the lower lights are vital. The lower lights must be burning for those within the storm to come to safety in the harbor. Follow me. And this reasonable result will be that I will make you fishers of men. Finally then in the narrative we come to the last R, a reasonable response on the part of these four individuals, these four common ordinary men. And their response, recorded in verse 20 and in verse 22, is an understatement by Matthew again, and yet it is a powerful understatement, because with few words, he gives us just a stark picture of their commitment to Christ. Here are these men. They have believed that he is the Messiah. They've gone with him in Judea. They've seen him minister to others. They've gone back to their occupation and here the Lord comes and calls them back for a time to be with him. And here is their response recorded in verse 20 and in verse 22. Immediately, straightway, without delay, they left their nets and they followed him. Simon and Andrew 
left their net in the water for all intent and purposes. They were casting their net and they left their net to those who would be aiding them on their boat and they followed after Christ. And then in verse 22, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, immediately they left their boat and their father and they followed after Jesus. You must wonder what Zebedee was thinking as his sons got up and walked away from their work and left it to him and to the servants that were aiding him. The response of these men was immediate because they knew who was requesting their allegiance. And they understood fully what he was demanding of them was a total commitment of their lives. Their response demanded departure from their very livelihood. This was following by faith. Their response was the only reasonable response to the one who had come to save sinners from the wrath of God. They followed. The message hasn't changed. Jesus is still in this period of grace. He is still demanding and requesting, follow me. Sinners, follow me. Repent, turn, and come after me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. For in losing your life, you will gain eternal life. The only reasonable, the only understandable response is an immediate and total abandonment of self, abandonment of norm, abandonment of comfort, and a pursuit and a following of the Messiah. These men would become fishers of men. The Lord's promise would be true and be fulfilled in their lives. And their obedience should stand as an example to us. Matthew's obedience should also be an example, and we'll get there in Matthew chapter 9. But he immediately left his tax booth, walked away, and never again returned as he became a follower, a disciple, one of the twelve that were immediately ministered to by Jesus Christ. So that leaves us at the conclusion of a little paragraph in our New Testament asking ourselves, so what? Right? First question we ask of the Word of God when we come to it is, what does it say? What's here? What am I observing in the text? The second question is, what does it mean? Without the meaning of the Bible, we're left without the Bible. The meaning is the Scripture. We need to get it right. And then the third question could never be left alone. The third question is not just what does it say, not just what does it mean, but the third question and most vital is how is it to be applied? So what? What does it mean tomorrow? What does it mean this afternoon as a follower of Christ that I have encountered the Word of God? We know that this section is just as sharp and just as powerful as the rest of this two-edged sword. And so we need to ask ourselves, so what? Well, the messianic need, the messianic call, the messianic demand, the messianic request has not changed. And so it leaves us with some questions. And I wrote down three. You could come up with more. Have you, have I, left everything and followed Christ? Christ does not demand us to leave our jobs necessarily. He doesn't demand our families to be shattered necessarily. But would we do it? Have we left it all? Have we laid it all before Him and say, I surrender all of my life to follow after you? 
Or do we find ourselves like the rich young ruler, disappointed because we have so much, wanting to add Jesus to our lives rather than abandon our, our lives, our goals, our focus, and follow after him? Does your claim, Christian, this morning, does your claim to be a follower of Jesus stand up and walk in your daily life? Does your claim to be one who follows after the Lord, who follows His commands, who loves Him, who sees Him as the Messiah, does that live? Is that seen? Does that stand up in the court? Will the judge see you as true, as one who has been justified by faith? Is your claim to be a follower a valid claim? And then thirdly, if you have never denied yourself, if you have never taken up your cross, if you have never turned and followed after Christ, then I ask you today, will you today follow him? We can't come to this text, we can't come to the demand on the disciples to be fishers of men and not make an opportunity, not request that you, and demand that you who do not know him, follow after Christ. He is the Messiah. He's been proven as such in the previous chapters. And now as he gathers men for ministry, we see again the high calling of discipleship. Follow me and become fishers of men. A short section, but an important one for us. As Christians, we need to understand fully that to follow Christ is to fish for others to follow Christ. And those of us who do not know the Lord, who may claim or may not claim to follow Him, must understand that today, now, this period is the only time of salvation. Your life may end, Christ may return, and there will be no more opportunity for grace. Today is the day. You must repent, confess your sin, turn from your sin, and follow Christ, placing your faith in what you cannot see, that His substitution, His death, was for sin and that it has satisfied God's wrath. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you stand as a sinner who is under the judgment of God. And rightly so. He is holy, therefore he must punish sin. And the only punishment that will appease him for sin is death. And so this morning as a sinner, you must understand that someone must die for your sin. The ministry of Jesus is that he came, he lived in in purity, he lived without sin, and then he died to take the place of all those who would place their faith in him. He is a substitute, and he is the only Savior of sinners. Will you trust him this morning and follow after him?